Spring is a great time of year to do some cleaning around the house and clean up your finances. And something else that you can do for your family this spring is shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius as part of your financial planning for the year. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses, things like mortgage payments, credit card payments, car loans, or even college costs. I have a wife and two kids, with a third on the way, by the way, and business partners that all depend on my income. So I needed life insurance and Policy Genius made that so incredibly easy. And with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. One of my favorite ways to invest is real estate, but not everyone wants to handle tenants and toilets. Enter Fundrise. They make it easy to invest in real estate with their flagship fund. Now, as always, you always have to carefully consider the investment objectives and risks of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. But right now, demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. And the Fundrise flagship fund plans on going on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with just as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash PFP. As always, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash PFP. That's fundrise.com slash PFP. This is a paid advertisement. On this episode of the Personal Finance Podcast, we're going to be talking to Doug Cunnington about how to build multiple streams of income through niche sites. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Personal Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew, founder of MasterMoney.co. And today on the Personal Finance Podcast, we are going to be talking to Doug Cunnington about how to build multiple streams of income via niche sites. If you guys have any questions, make sure you hit me up on Instagram or TikTok at MasterMoneyCo and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you love listening to this podcast. So if you want to help out the show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now, today we're going to be talking to Doug Cunnington about niche sites. And niche sites are a fantastic way to start a side hustle, especially if you want to be able to work from home. And I learned this stuff very early on from Doug. I was actually a student in one of his courses as well, and he has a fantastic way of teaching. In addition, he makes it really simple because he gives you free templates and all these other additional resources. So this is something that is very cool, and I'm so excited to share this interview with you because we're going to be going through niche sites and how to actually set up a site. We're going to be going through Google SEO and how you can actually work through SEO and understand the basics of SEO. Then we're going to be talking about how you actually make money with niche sites and how you can earn an income. And if you have multiple niche sites, you can earn multiple streams of income. And then additionally, how Doug utilized niche sites 
and his online businesses to be able to pursue financial independence. See, Doug has another podcast called The Doug Show. In addition, he has one called Mile High Fi, which is one where he talks about financial independence with his co-host, Carl, and they go through all the topics that we talk about as well. So this is a really fun interview. It is one that I am really excited to share with you because I think there's a ton of value in here. And if you want to start an online business, this is the one of the best ways to do it. This is the one of the best ways to get started because it helps you build skills into building out websites or learning how to sell online or how to put together affiliate programs. All of these different things, Doug lays it out for us so that we have the best understanding possible and the basic 101 of niche sites. Now you can go really deep on niche sites as well. And Doug lays it out perfectly to get you started. So make sure you are listening into this episode. So excited to share with you. Now, let's welcome Doug to the Personal Finance Podcast. So Doug, welcome to the Personal Finance Podcast. Andrew, I'm pumped to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. So I am incredibly excited to have you here because Doug, I used to be one of your students. I bought your course early on. I learned all of this stuff from you very early on. I used to listen to your podcast, The Doug Show, on a daily basis, especially when I was uh, working like a nine to five job and stuff. I was trying to figure out ways to get out of that nine to five job. So this is some of the stuff that I really, really love. And I kind of fell in love with it by listening to your podcast and Spencer's and a couple others as well. So this is something that I'm really, really passionate about. I'm excited to share this with people because this is something we really haven't talked much about on this podcast as well. But I think it's something that you've utilized to pursue financial independence. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well so that you can start to build passive income streams and be able to actually build wealth over time. So Today, we're going to be talking about niche sites, and niche sites are something that I think is an incredibly powerful way for people who are working a nine to five to try to start to generate some additional income, or if you're just a business owner, you want to generate income as well. So can we start off by you explaining what a niche site is? Sure. So appreciate all the kind words, by the way, but a niche site generally is just a website that's kind of focused in one topic area, and it can be a very broad topic area. So in the kind of a big sense, like ESPN is a sports niche website. Of course, you know, it's a big media company and all that stuff, but generally that's kind of the idea. Now, when we're talking about, you know, side hustles in niche sites, usually we're thinking a little smaller scale. Um, maybe one of the big ones out there that people have seen would be like Outdoor Gear Lab or Baby Gear Lab. Now, those are pretty big uh, generally and probably make millions of dollars per year and have a full team. But those are kind of what we're thinking about. And, you know, generally they get traffic from Google organic search. So SEO, search engine optimization, and then they're monetized typically with either affiliate offers, and that could be like Amazon affiliate or display ads, usually both, like the best case scenario is both and display ads will you know, those are the ads we see on websites all over. They could be little videos in the corner that pop up when you're trying to look at a recipe, that sort of thing. But that's the general idea with a niche site. And that's perfect. And I think the cool thing about this is if you are willing to put in some time up front, it is something that you can start to generate money in it over time as you have more articles and things like that, then you'll be able to start to generate even more income. So if someone's interested in maybe starting a niche site, what is the process someone should follow in order to choose a niche? Because it's very important the niche that you choose. And it's something that I think is really important up front to understand some of the ramifications of Google and the eat and all that kind of stuff. So can you kind of walk us through some of the steps we should take when choosing a niche? This is definitely shifted over time. And when I got started, 
gosh, almost nine years ago in 2013, if I'm doing math right, things were a little bit different. And depending on who you learned from, you maybe selected, um, you know, just a, kind of a different path. And as time has gone on and Google has shifted and I have become like a more mature entrepreneur and I see what other people do, especially beginners, now probably the top advice that I can give for choosing a niche is pick something that you're either interested in or maybe lightly passionate in. You don't have to be absolutely obsessed, but that is okay. And one of the reasons why is you'll know the content pretty well. You'll know the things that people care about because you're part of that community. And things are going to get a little tough. You may not get as much momentum and traction as you hope early on. And if you're interested or passionate or it's something that you care about anyway, it's going to be a little bit easier to push through those obstacles. And there are a lot of other people, uh, maybe some of my peers that, you know, they'll sort of gloss over uh, the hard part, but this is a great business model. It's a fun thing to get into, but like any skill that you need to develop, playing an instrument, training for a marathon, you know, surfing, whatever it is, you have to put the time in, you have to develop the skills and you're not going to be able to, you know, play the guitar as well as you hope to right off the bat in the first week or month or so. So it's really important, I think, to have that sort of positive uh, energy towards it and pick something that you're interested in. That said, you can take a systematic approach to it. And I come from a corporate project management IT background. So systems and templates and all that kind of stuff is what I gravitate towards. So with that said, you can make it simple, you know, just get a notepad, start writing out a list of the things that maybe you're interested in, maybe that you wanted to pursue in the past, but you never had the time to look deeper into it, or you just had some excuse, right? You, you just couldn't get into it before. Or maybe you have a family member or a friend who is interested in it and you never had time to pursue it. Those are great. Um, some other things you could do to come up with ideas is go to a place like Amazon, a big marketplace, and just browse around different departments and products. And maybe you end up in outdoors, maybe you end up in camping, maybe you head over to like home wares and, you know, outdoor yard uh, games and stuff like that. So there's all these different areas you can explore and figure out what sort of fits for you. One great reason to go to Amazon is, you know, there's tons of products from the things I mentioned and way beyond. Um, it could appeal to an industrial audience, a business audience, consumers at home, children, parents, whatever. So there's such a huge amount of uh, information there just from browsing around. If they're selling it on Amazon and you can see a lot of reviews, you know that there's a good market out there. People are buying these products. That's kind of where I would start. You can also you know, take another step back. And I recommend when you're doing this brainstorming to brainstorm for a little while, take a break, you know, go for a walk, maybe come back to it in a couple of days and then think again, like, do I spend time on Facebook groups? What are the topics there? Maybe uh, you're into TikTok or Instagram or something like that. So what sort of communities are you part of? And then what products are associated with that? So that's a great way to like figure out where you're spending your time and then understand that there's a big audience out there, people, you know, maybe just like you. 
That's a great tip as well, because I think some of the stuff that when I early on started this, I did one niche site that failed. And the one that failed was a topic that I was not interested in whatsoever. And all of a sudden you realize you have to grind through some stages, especially early on. And when you're grinding through those early stages, I mean, you're spending hours and hours writing posts and articles. And it's something where you can really burn out fast if you really absolutely hate the topic. So it's one of those things where maybe it was a good topic in terms of being able to optimize it. But at the same time, you also got to be able to withstand this business and be able to kind of move it forward uh, in the ways that you need to. So that is absolutely perfect. Um, and I love some of those ideas going through some of your interests and the content that you're actually consuming already because you're already interested in it. You're thinking about it. You probably understand it to an extent. So it's something that you definitely want to be looking into as well. So say somebody wants to set up a site. There are some steps you obviously want to consider when you set up a site, if, especially if you're brand new and you've never built a website before. So what are some of the steps that you should follow to get a site up and running? So I'll jump back and go higher level uh, before I answer that. So one great thing about niche sites is you'll learn a set of skills. So even if like the niche site didn't work out or it didn't work out as big as you thought and it's just a little side hustle, little project, you're going to learn about setting up a website. You're going to learn about WordPress themes. You're going to learn about content and publishing, maybe some graphic design. And I know many people that have not done exactly what they wanted with a niche site, but then they realize they're a great graphic designer and they can open an agency, right? So I'm skipping a lot of steps there, but like you could figure out something that you're good at by experimenting with like a little side project and then discover that you really want to spend time as a content writer, something like that. Okay, so with that said, it starts with hosting. So at this point, web hosting is a commodity. There's a lot of big companies out there. Um, I'm not uh, really dogmatic about any one company or anything. As long as you don't get the cheapest hosting, you're probably gonna be okay, and you probably don't need the most expensive. So we're probably talking you know, 10, 15 bucks a month or so. Oftentimes, you'll be able to get like, a Black Friday deal or a Father's Day deal or a Mother's Day deal. There's always a deal going on. So the first year often it's gonna be, you know, half price or something like that. So web hosting, that's number one. Next is, uh, you know, probably WordPress. That's the best place to probably start. So WordPress should be like a one-click install, should be very easy. And then after that, you'll need a WordPress theme. This could be daunting. There are many thousands of WordPress themes out there and they all have really good marketing and sales material. So you may think that you need that specific one. For me, I like the theme to just stay out of the way so I can publish the content and focus on the writing and the things that are you know most important. You can get a free theme. Uh, Automatic is the company that owns WordPress and they put out a lot of paid and free themes. Those are very good. The security is going to be tight. They may not be the, you know, the super fastest, but they're going to be pretty good. And there's one for each year. So there's like, you know, WordPress 2021, 2022, whatever. Each year they put out a new one. And you can, you know, maybe go to a website, someone that you follow. And if you think you like that, you can, you know, do some research and figure out what theme that they're using. And that could be fine too. But generally, you don't need all the bells and whistles. And the more bells and whistles, the more complicated it is and the more time you can burn just setting up your theme. So for me, simplicity is best. After that, there's potentially a couple plugins you may want to get. Um, you could do a little bit more research and you know figure out which ones uh, you need but you know i'm thinking mostly like security type plugins so 
no one's going to hack your website and that sort of thing. There are suites of products that can help you do that. Um, typically, you'll be able to find a free solution for both the theme and the plugin. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts. And, you know, for me, I spent a lot of time, uh, wasted time, that is, early on with, you know, putting in too many plugins on the website and my site was too slow. The theme was overly complicated and now I'm just kind of a minimalist. So yeah, Andrew, what do you think about themes? Any tips on that? That's the same thing. So I started with free themes and that was the first thing I started with because I just wanted to hit the ground running, like you said. And I learned from you because early on what I did was I put a million plugins on there as well and it slowed down my site so much that like it would take 10 seconds for a web page to even load. So once I took your minimalist approach to taking out all the plugins and kind of reducing that, it sped up my site significantly. And the big thing here is if people are new to websites, your site speed matters when it comes to Google SEO and a lot of other things. So you want your site to be as fast as you possibly can get it within reason, but it needs to be fast enough at least. So this is one big thing that you definitely want to be doing. But for themes, after I started to kind of get the hang of it and then started to add some additional sites later on, um, then I started to pay for themes. But really, I didn't notice that huge of a difference between the two. A lot of times the free themes can do the same thing that a paid one can do. So sometimes paid ones just have extra design features and stuff like that if you're into that. But like Doug said, don't take too much time on the design side. What you want to do is hit the ground running and start to do the content work and that kind of stuff as well. And that's a big thing that comes into play next, which is the content. So in your opinion, Doug, we're looking at, um, you know, starting our site. Maybe we get everything put together. Um, we start to get our site up and then we need to start writing content. So should we have a certain amount of articles before we launch the site? And in your opinion, what is the optimal length for some of those articles as well? I wouldn't worry too much about, uh, you know, quote, a launch. So really, you can get the hosting, put the theme up, and then say, hey, I launched my website. That's it. There's not really a big event. Like if you start a new podcast, you may want to have whatever, three, five episodes publish right away and you actually launch and there's some marketing effort behind it. But when you start a new site and your goal is to get traffic from Google, there's not going to be like an event. No one cares. And you know, one thing that people are hesitant about to just publish content, maybe just one article or something instead of 10 or 20 or something like that, they're afraid that someone's going to land on their site and see there's only one article. They're going to be a little embarrassed. My answer to that is you should be so lucky that someone's going to land on your site early on in the first couple of days. That's amazing. That means you've done some you know miraculous thing that's going to be working out for you, right? So I wouldn't worry about it too much. There's not really going to be a launch. This is going to be like a soft opening. So I would say as soon as you start writing content, you can start publishing it. One reason why we may get into it more is it'll allow Google to index that specific page, that post, and then it'll start aging, which is a good thing. Google will be able to start recommending it or putting it in the search engine result page, which is a good thing. So the sooner you could publish an article, the better. So publish it as soon as possible. You can always come back and edit it. And that's the other thing. Like It's not a permanent document. It's a living document. You can go back. And you should go back and update it in the future. So publish it and you can come back and fix it when you're a better writer, when you have a better handle on it. That said, I can't answer your question, Andrew. So I would say 20 articles is a good amount to aim for, like your first push of content where you're like, my goal is to get 20 articles out in 
a month or a quarter or six months or whatever is appropriate for you. But 20 articles is like, that's a pretty solid amount. It'll represent, you know, many hours of work and effort from you. And that can be enough to, you know, get started and see some traffic land on your site. And that's perfect. And so as we start to write some of these articles, and I agree with you as well, because I think sometimes a lot of people just kind of get into that mode where they're just waiting till they have enough. But I agree with you, just post it and start getting those articles out there so that they can start aging. And we'll talk about aging a little bit more later as well. But I think it's one of those things that you definitely just want to get started and get moving on it. Is there like an optimal length for articles that you think for SEO side? And then if there is, how long does it typically take you to write an article? So it does depend on the niche and the topic area, but just broadly speaking, without knowing you know what topic someone is writing about, about a thousand to two thousand words is going to probably get you pretty close. You know, eighty ninety percent of the time, if it's a very you know quick answer, you know what's the boiling temperature of water in Tampa? What's the boiling temperature of water in Denver? Those could be pretty quick. Like the answer is you know two twelve down there. Up here it's like. Man, I don't know, 208, something like that, Fahrenheit. So if it's a quick answer, don't uh, write a long novel about uh, all these different topics that maybe are kind of related, just answer the question. So those maybe can be 200 words where you answer and then give a little background on why it might be different because of the elevation. Um, as far as you know, longer articles, you can go and just see what is out there uh, ranking in Google already. And that'll give you a really good idea on what Google thinks is kind of the optimal length. And it'll be, it'll vary, right? So you may find one that's 1500 words and one that's 5,000 words, both ranking on the first page, but you can kind of get an average again, you know, around 1500 words plus or minus 500. That'll get you pretty close. And for me, I'm kind of a slow writer. I didn't have a strong writing background before I got into this. And you know, for a thousand words, 2000 words, it may take me like two to four hours, depending on, you know, research I might have to do. Do I have a strong outline? Is it more of a narrative where I can just write it from my head and it's more like journaling? Are there images? Maybe I need to, you know, go find, or maybe I've taken pictures and I want to use those. And there could be a little of editing with those perhaps, but yeah, two to four hours. And again, you know, that's just, you know, the first draft an edit. I use uh, tools like Grammarly to clean up the grammar and make sure there's not misspelled words. I'm not a great comma user. So, you know, I do my best, but Grammarly can come back and help me out. Yeah. Do you use Grammarly also? Or I do. I love Grammarly. So that's one of the main tools that I yeah. use when I write articles. Yeah. And then, you know, when you come back, um, which, you know, can be a few weeks later if you want, or it could be, you know, several months, but you can come back and, you know, re-edit the article. If there's new information, you know, this happens occasionally where there's a news story that's relevant and I'll go back and I'll add, you know, a little section, like here's a little update and I'd link back to maybe the news source where I got that information. That's perfect. And another great tool that I use is um, the Hemingway app. I don't know if you ever use that as well, but that is one where it kind of helps you look at the readability of your article um, and go through that process. But I took about two to four hours also as well when I would write articles. And a lot of times doing the the structure of the article and stuff and, and making sure that you actually have the content structured in a way that is appealing to the eye and that you can scan and all that kind of stuff um, was one thing that actually take me a little bit longer sometimes. than I think most people, it usually take me like 45 minutes somewhere around there. So I don't know why it would take me so long, but I would just always have to be like a perfectionist when it came to that kind of stuff. Sure. 
So one other thing that comes into play is that you can actually outsource this stuff. And a lot of people don't know that where you, if you're busy, if you're working a nine to five, maybe you're in the corporate world, you're doing well financially, or you have a business and you want to use some of those funds as well. And you want to outsource some of this content, you can outsource content writing. So how much does that typically cost maybe per article? And when you're looking at that, where are some places that you can actually outsource some of this? So there's a fairly big range and there's two kind of main areas. So you can get uh, freelancers and I typically go to Upwork, which is a freelance marketplace. And you can find people that can do anything from, you know, video editing to your writing to project management or accounting and bookkeeping, whatever you want. You can hire someone over there and it'll be cheaper there. There's less overhead. You can also hire people from agencies. So the agencies will do all that management. They have a team of writers. They do the project management, they assign it, they do the editing and that sort of thing. So if you are going to a place like Upwork or a similar site, you potentially can get content from maybe about $20 for a thousand words. It's really on the low end. So that may be, you know, uh, international, somewhere where the cost of living is lower so they can afford to charge a cheaper price up to, you know, potentially, you know, 50, 80, a hundred dollars, depending on the quality that you need and the qualifications and expertise that you need from your writers. So really kind of a big range, but generally if you hire someone directly, you cut out all the overhead, all the admin costs. So you'll get a much cheaper price. And that's something I did like from the start, I knew I wanted to understand how to hire someone directly. And because of my previous corporate gig, I knew how to manage people remotely. And I knew basically how to hire and when to release them if it's not working out. So I had a fairly strong like management and HR uh, skill set, And I knew it would be really good to save money and just use those skills that I had. When you work with an agency, all that is outsourced. All the hiring, firing, assignments, all that is outsourced. So that could be a lot more expensive. And I would say, you know, potentially on the low end, maybe, you know, $60 for a thousand words up to, you know, hundreds, there's kind of no limit depending on how much expertise you need. And that's kind of the deciding factor. I think um, another idea, I haven't done this, but I know it can be useful is if you aim for like college students or grad students, you would have to be a little more clever on how to do that. But I mean, people could figure out how to get to like a job board that's targeting college students or something like that. In that way, you know, they're not used to having a big full-time salary and they're just happy to get some work on the side perhaps. So you could be creative and use, you know, similar ideas like that. So that's, those are perfect. Those are and that's exactly sense. what I would try to do too, is I would go through Upwork and Doug has some great information on his site that kind of walks you through how he hired people on Upwork as well. But Upwork is a great place to look. And the college student one I've heard you talk about as well. And I think that one's interesting. Somebody needs to create like a job board. There's another business idea for college students to link up as writers with content creators. I think that'd be something pretty interesting. That is some of the ways to actually outsource it, which I think is absolutely amazing. It's a great way to go, especially early on. If you have a couple thousand dollars to invest, you can invest in some content. And, you know, if that content is written well, it's edited down well, then it can make you money for a long period of time. So I think it's something that's very interesting as well. Now, when we do some of these um, niche sites as early on, you know, we want to focus on the content, the content we're writing as well. But should we incorporate video and YouTube in this as well? Only if you like video, only if you want to, you know, learn a little bit about it, or maybe you already have that skill set. 
I love video, but I didn't start doing it until I had an established blog and I had that part taken care of. The great thing when you do want to add video or if you already have video as part of your skill set, you can really just repurpose the content. So if you have a blog post, you can just convert it over to a video. Of course, you know, you would need to write a script and shoot the video so that it fits, but you've done the majority of the work. You've done all the research. So like I said, I love video. So I, you know, I like it when people get involved, but it is complicated. There's a lot of stuff involved. It can be easy. You can get started on your phone. So if you want to dabble, I would say start on your phone, keep it simple, make sure the sound is good, make sure the lighting's good. Um, you don't have to worry as much about the quality of the video. You know, you could probably publish in 720p instead of 4K, like it's not a big deal. But if your sound is not right, people are not going to sit through it. So those are a couple of things I learned over time. But yeah, what do you think as far as video? I agree with you. And I think once your site maybe starts to build, maybe you have a brand or even some authority that comes into play, then you can start to kind of dabble in video as well, unless you really like it. If you love video, then obviously the content's there. You can go ahead and do that. But I agree with you as well, because I think it's just one of those things. It is very difficult to learn early on. And um, once you learn it, it's a skill that you have forever. But at the same time, it's one of those things that's going to create a lot more work for you uh, going forward, especially if you're editing yourself and doing all those other things. So yeah. one thing that we're looking at here is we want to understand how Google works. And a lot of people may know what SEO is, or maybe they don't. Um, but that is one major factor when it comes to creating content, because you want your content to rank on the first page optimally, or at least the first two pages in terms of a for a specific search term. So can you explain SEO and some of the skills um, niche site owners might need to understand, including like keyword research, backlinks, that type of stuff? It's a huge, vast area. So we'll just hit the high points here. But if people want to you know, learn more, they can certainly go to like YouTube and just start watching videos and you'll realize how deep this whole thing goes. But in general, the concepts are, you know, someone goes over to Google, they type in some search term. Let's maybe stick with a video idea. Someone might type in best DSLR for YouTube for example, and then there will be some results that pop up, probably you know several blogs, maybe some YouTube videos as well, but that's the general idea. And from the you know just most basic SEO standpoint, if you can you know rank high, then people are gonna click on your site. And it's really dramatic. Like if you rank number one versus number two, like number one is gonna get something like 75% of the clicks. I haven't seen recent data, but you know, number one gets a huge amount of the uh, traffic. Number two, even though it's just one position lower, it's going to get something like 25% of what number one got. So we're talking, you know, just I forgot the math that I just said, but say 20%. And then it drops off dramatically. So the first position gets a huge amount of traffic. So that's why you want to be up there. And as far as, you know, SEO skills that you'll need to look into. One of the key pieces is to make sure you're writing content that people are actually searching for. Otherwise, no one will search for it and no one will go to your site. And I think the tools these days are pretty sophisticated. Back in the day, maybe not so much. And I know uh, maybe if you, you were thinking, hey, I want to start a blog and you just start writing about what's going on in your life, you don't get much traffic typically because you know no one's searching for the obscure title that I went on a hike 
in the fall, no one really cares about that. So you have to make sure people are searching for it. And, you know, going back to the, you know, choosing a niche area, this all sort of fits together. So when you're choosing your niche, you would go and look, uh, perhaps use an SEO keyword research tool where it'll tell you the number of searches per month for a keyword phrase. So it's purely an estimate, you know, it's not gonna be exact, it's based on historical data and months can vary. So in December, there's gonna be a lot of searches about Christmas lights and Christmas related gifts and that sort of thing. But in February, there's gonna be very few of those searches. So there's a seasonality component as well that you have to consider. So you have this um, you know, number of searches per month and it's an estimate, but it gives you an idea relatively compared to other keywords, if it's you know searched for a lot and maybe really profitable, or maybe it's not searched for very much and it's fairly uh, low search volume. And that also means low competition most of the time. So when you're starting a site and you're looking at keywords, you may be tempted to go for the highest search volume because that would be the most profitable. The downside to that is that is exactly what everyone else will do because it's profitable. So it's a little bit easier to rank and it's a little bit easier to get started if you aim towards the low competition, low search volume keywords. A lot of times you'll see this noted as uh, like a long tail keyword, and that's sort of a mathematical, you know, graphical representation. And the long tail, it kind of goes on forever. There's a whole book by Chris Anderson by it a few years ago that is uh, very good, and it kind of explains the long tail. But that's the general idea with, uh, you know, the keyword research. Again, SEO is huge, so I've lost my spot on actually what I was talking about. So, Andrew, can you reel me back in here? <laughs> Absolutely. So we're talking about because SEO is a, like a giant blue ocean. So you are right. And Doug, I mean, Doug's had episodes and episodes and episodes on SEO. So it's one of those things that's a massive thing. But understanding some of these key basic things like keyword research. So, for example, if someone is going to start doing keyword research, one cool hack that I like is because you'll see some of these tools can be expensive monthly, especially if you're just starting out in business is that you can do a bunch of keyword research for a couple of months and then you don't have to maintain that subscription. You can in that subscription until you need it again. It's one of those things that I used to do early on. Are there any tools for keyword research that you like using? Sure. One of my favorite for sort of pure keyword research is called KW Finder. And, you know, again, it's one of those where you might be able to get a free trial for a few days, but, you know, these offers vary. Some other good ones are Hrefs, which is, kind of a full marketing suite. So it's really overkill. There's a lot of stuff in there, but very powerful tool. And it's one where maybe you would pay for it for like a month or two and then cancel it because it's kind of made for you know professionals and agencies. So it is fairly expensive. And then really one of the best ones is free. Um, so I'll plug that. And that is um, just Google. It's like, go over to Google yeah. and start typing in and you'll have auto suggest fill in for you. So if you start typing in best DSLR, you'll see a bunch of auto suggest pop up. And if you type in for FOR and hit a space, a bunch more will pop up. So just using Google auto suggest, most people should be able to find probably more keywords than they could publish in a year, I would guess. I mean, in a few minutes, you could most likely find 50 of them or so. And once you find a pocket of them, you could kind of go with it. So one of the best formats from a product review perspective for keywords is best 
product type for, and then it's either a user type or an application. So I'll stick with the camera idea since I'm not creative. So best DSLR for YouTube, for astrophotography, for portraits, for pet photography. So different applications here. You also can put like a user type and I just thought of another idea. So best running shoes for women, for men, for teens, people with flat feet, people with high arches and so on. So once you come up with like a couple keyword ideas, you can kind of expand it out and do this sort of um, combination approach where you just mix and match. I love that. And I think that Google auto suggests is one of the things that you can definitely use right away because that's what people are actually searching for. Google is telling you these, this is what people are actually searching for when you have these terms into play. So it's a perfect one. And once you get those keywords into play, you can make a list on a spreadsheet or something like that. Then it's time to get to work. You don't want to be doing this, you know, all day long and every single day doing keyword research because that's the key is getting it up front and then having a list that you can start to work on. Now, one big thing that comes into play that people really need to understand is the Google sandbox. And this is one thing where we were talking a little bit earlier about age sites and age articles and things as well. Um, can you explain the Google sandbox and how it works and how long does it take to actually get out of the Google sandbox? So this is a unconfirmed concept from Google. So SEO folks and people that are aware will have this term and we'll sort of throw it around, but Google has never said there's a sandbox or if they did, it was, you know, many, many years ago, I think there's some forum post, some obscure place on the internet where there was a mention, but it's kind of unconfirmed. So essentially the idea is Google kind of puts you in a, you know, quote probation sandbox area where they're not going to rank your site as high, thus not giving you as much traffic, but they won't rank you as high until you put your, you know, quote time in. And generally that's going to be about six months or so. It seems like a lot of people are seeing about a year as these days and you know, towards the end of 2022, it may take a year. Now that said, there are absolutely exceptions, right? So, and it doesn't mean you won't get any traffic. It just means you might not perform as well as you will in the future because your site just doesn't have the age and maybe the trust um, from Google. So this can be seen like uh, fairly evidently when you see analytics graphs and, you know, things are trucking along. Maybe there's a little growth from say month two forward all the way to month six. And then you'll see like a really nice uh, growth where something happened and you didn't do anything different. You just kept publishing, doing whatever you were doing before. And like I said, sometimes um, it can be longer. So uh, one of my recent sites in the last couple of years, I didn't see very much um, until month nine or 10. And it started to grow a little bit more in terms of traffic and rankings. And then month 12, it actually started to grow a lot more. And I don't know why. I mean, I've started many sites that would move faster. I just interviewed uh, someone on my channel named LJ and she started a brand new site on a brand new domain. And she was able to get traffic and earnings up to, I think, $700 by month four, which is pretty quick. I don't remember wow. the traffic level, but you know she had enough traffic to earn that much. And then I just talked to her yesterday, month nine, she hit 3,000 and that's net. So that's after her expenses uh, with her assistant as well. So 3,000 
and pretty amazing within nine months. That's definitely an anomaly. But the point is, usually there's a sandbox. Not always. There's always exceptions. But most of the time, you can expect it to take six months or a year before you start getting more traffic. Exactly. And that's kind of the point with any content, if you think about it, is putting the time in. A lot of times, if you go on YouTube, for example, it's going to take you some time before YouTube's actually going to start ranking your videos in search because it's a Google entity, obviously. But the same thing for podcasting and everything else. When you create content, they want to make sure that you're actually going to stick with this instead of, and then they'll reward you for sticking with it. And a lot of times, when you create content, you'll see that the people who kind of stick around the longest are the ones that can start to see success as long as you have that good timeline and your content is good, obviously, as well. So between those few things, as long as you can stick with it, you create good content. It's something that you can definitely see results from over a longer period of time, like everything else. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier as well, but when it comes to making money with niche sites, we talked about um, you know display ads and affiliates. Are those the two primary ways for niche site owners to earn an income, in your opinion? Yes. So there's a couple other pieces that I'll throw in. So for the affiliate side, Amazon is probably the easiest way. It's the most obvious. It's very easy to sign up. The great thing with Amazon is it converts really well, very low friction. We could probably accidentally order something on our phone while we're on this interview right now. It's just so easy with one click ordering and people don't have to put in their credit card. The downside with Amazon is their commission rates are lower. And in fact, in 2017 and 2020, they lowered their commission rates significantly. So a lot of people, you know, had income that was cut by, you know, 30, 40, 50%, depending on the specifics of their site. And, you know, that hurts. You don't have control over it. You can't call up Jeff Bezos and ask him to reconsider or anything like that. Um, so it is easy to start with Amazon. The good part is most companies do have some affiliate programs. So, you know, Walmart's out there also. You can work with individual companies as well that just want to work um, with you. Maybe they have a program. They still sell on Amazon, but they have a program and, you know, they'll earn a little bit more money. Maybe your commission rate is a little bit higher. The downside is it may not convert as well. So you always have to test to kind of figure it out. The other piece with affiliate marketing that a lot of people forget if they just think about Amazon and physical products is digital products. So software and courses. And the great part with software and courses is they're sort of infinitely scalable and there's no inventory. There's no money tied up in a warehouse. So with that, the product owners are much uh, more willing to pay high percentage rates. So instead of, you know, one to say five or 6%, they're willing to pay like 40, 50% in some cases. So one of the key things when you're choosing a niche is if you can figure out one that does have uh, software or courses associated with it, that's awesome because you could expand out, you could kind of diversify your income sources. And again, the example with photography, there's software for video editing. There's other software to sort of optimize the audio portion of video and so on. There's tons of software out there for photography stuff. Courses, you know, same deal. You can go to a place like Udemy and just browse and see what courses are available out there. And the good part is online courses and the platforms are so 
mature at this point that it's hard to find a topic area that doesn't have courses associated with it. So if you go and search, you probably can find one. So these digital products, really powerful. If you, you know, spend the time to go find them, you know, figure out the right way to write the reviews and promote them. Maybe you've taken the course. That's a great way to actually write a good review. And I love that as well, because the digital products are just one of those things where obviously, like you said, you don't have inventory, you don't have anything available there. And if someone is wondering, okay, well, if you've never heard of what an affiliate is before, what it is, it's a way for you to work with Amazon, for example, like Doug said, Amazon is the easiest place to start. And say, for example, you land on my website, for example, we have a book club. And if we talk about a book and we link it up to on Amazon, then what's going to happen is then we get a small percentage at no extra cost to you. So it's basically a sales commission that you get from linking to some of these products. And there's so many out there now um, where you can link to so many different types of products. In addition, like Doug said, there's Walmart, there's Target, there's a bunch of Best Buy. They all have different affiliate programs that you can sign up for. So that is a really cool way to earn an income. But the digital products are something where you can earn a much higher percentage, especially on the profit side, and be able to not have to, you create it once, and then it's a kind of a set it and forget a thing as long as you're getting traffic there, which is really, really cool. Now, we, the other side of it is display ads. So it used to be that you just sign up for Google AdSense and you could do display ads that way. But now there's obviously a bunch of new programs out there as well. So a lot of people starting off, they sign up for Google AdSense. And then can you explain kind of how display ads work and maybe how much money you can make depending on how many visitors you get to your site? Sure. I'll do my best on the revenue side, but display ads, typically they are going to be similar to like the AdSense style that you've seen in the past. And a lot of ads still come through the Google ad network, but it's usually through some other company these days. Um, Ezoic is one, Mediavine, AdThrive. Those are kind of the big three. And I'm partial to Ezoic uh, most of the time. So I am as well. Yep. And they do um, a great job. All of them are kind of, you know, software companies in some capacity. And, you know, one thing that they do for you is they'll help you, you know, place the ads. So back in the day, if you just got AdSense, you maybe would have to figure out where to put the ads for optimal earnings, which is really difficult to do. You have to know how to do A-B testing and like analysis with all the stats that you get. So kind of tough to do, but the companies that help you out, like Ezoic, for example, they do all the testing for you. So they actually can set it up where, you know, anywhere an ad can be placed, they'll test it. And through these thousands of A-B tests that they do, they'll kind of figure out the optimal ad placement. And, you know, these ads have advertisers on the other side and they'll put in, you know, their maximum bid for a specific uh, placement. And then it goes through, you know, kind of an auction in real time. And then those ads are displayed. These days are very sophisticated. And as I mentioned before, there may be little video ads. Um, in the worst cases, you'll see a bunch of ads, some video ads in the bottom and then at the top. And then you could barely, you know, if you're on your phone, you could barely read anything. So, you know, we really don't want to have that kind of user experience. But if you do it in the right way, the ads are shown. Hopefully it's relevant to the user and they can see whatever content they're trying to see. So that's the general idea. As far as earning, it really varies a lot based on the niche and the number of advertisers that are out there. So I don't even wanna speculate too much, but what I can say is most of the companies can give you sort of a ballpark overall, their network, the niche, and then the typical earnings per thousand visitor. So you may see that as RPM, 
or EPMV for Ezoic. And you'll have an understanding like, okay, here's kind of the range for the niche that I'm in. But, you know, one thing just to maybe state the obvious is, you know, markets that have a lot of money and advertisers behind them will most likely pay the most. So if you're looking at, you know, finance or, you know, pharmaceuticals or something like that, they're just going to pay a lot more. And you could watch ads on TV and see like who has the most ads out there. So if it's a, you know, smaller market with very few ads out there, it's probably not going to earn as much as one that's very mature. And there's a ton of money that they put into marketing. Absolutely. It's one of those cool things too, is as you put these ads up and as you start to see some traffic, it's kind of like that's the passive income when it comes to niche sites in terms of having those up is the more articles that you have, obviously, the more people are landing on those pages, which means you can make more money based on those display ads. And like Doug said, if you have too many display ads up, it just obviously makes the experience less optimal for people who are reading. Um, but in addition, it also can slow down your site, which is another thing that you don't want to be doing um, if you have way too many ads. So that's another big thing as well. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. And if you need to hire, you need Indeed, because Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. And they have a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. So ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash personal finance. Just go to indeed.com slash personal finance right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash personal finance. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now is a great time of year to get your finances in order. And no matter what your financial goals are this year, when you use Chime's online checking account, you can cross all those financial to-dos off your list. Chime's online checking account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-fee overdraft up to $200. Plus, get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go 24-7. And you get access to over 60,000 ATMs. So start building your credit and open a Chime checking account with at least $200 qualifying direct deposit to get started. Get started at Chime.com PFP. That's Chime.com PFP. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank, NA, or Stride Bank, NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Early access to direct deposit funds depends on payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. One of the hardest things about managing your money is figuring out where it's all going. And most of us are trying to save for several goals at once, which can feel like a daunting task to see if you're on track or even on pace to accomplishing your goals. But there is a tool that makes it so much easier and it's called Monarch Money. They help you track your money flow without taking a ton of time and energy. And Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. And you can invite them with an extra account with their own 
own login at no extra cost to collaborate with you. And Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can create custom budgets, set notifications, and you can set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications. And after trying Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash PFP. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash PFP for your extended 30-day free trial. There are some examples. Uh, you talked about a couple here before and some of the outliers, but what are some examples of how much someone can make in their first year? And then beyond their first year, what are some cool examples that you've seen? Because you've interviewed so many different people who have niche sites. So what are some of the coolest examples of people maybe who have earned money outside of their first year when they get out of the, out of the sandbox and all those other types of things? So I'll give you a quick sort of average. Um, when people just ask me and I don't know their niche, I don't know how much work they're going to put into it and a lot of other details. In six months or so, it's not unusual to see the quote average person make about $100 in a month. So that's, you know, putting in a few hours each week for six months. And I don't know what niche it is. I don't know how you're earning money, but earning about a hundred bucks is not unheard of. I've also seen people make probably $1,500, $2,000 also. So there's some outliers in there. And it really depends on how much work that you're putting in. So if someone is putting in 10 times more work, they're probably gonna see better results. And this is a sort of a classic case of, you know, the inputs and the outputs have a really kind of a long feedback loop. So you could be put in a lot of work and you're like, this isn't working. And then after six months or 12 months, then it kicks in and you realize you could have, or you should have been putting in even more effort as time went on but there was such a delay from the results that you didn't realize it was working and you were doing a great job. So with that said, um, some of the outliers, so LJ is one that I mentioned. There is a student who I've worked with for about four years. So she started her site in 2018 and you know, fairly uh, average start in month four, she had her first $100 month. By month six, I think she was at about 800. And currently, so fast forward a few years, so in 2021, she made about 70K. This year in 2022, she's on target for probably, I would say 100 to 120K. We don't know how the retail season will come out. And you know, she's actually uh, doing it on the side. I've interviewed her a ton. Uh, her name's Christy, and she's been featured on the channel a lot. And you know, she's put in a lot of work. She has about half of her revenue from Amazon, the other half from display ads and maybe a couple other smaller affiliates. She's now added another revenue source with um, some online courses, which it's not her thing. So I think she's kind of going to just move on from that. But she has an email list and she's been selling like direct ads. So those are going to be, you know, $500 um, a month whenever she closes one of those. And she just started. She already has one. I think she'll have another one probably by the end of this week that we're recording this. So like all these possibilities open up once you, you know, you get started, you get moving and, you know, she didn't have the ability to sell ads on her email list until later, but she, you know, got started. And after a year or two, she was able to start the email list. And then now a couple of years later, she has this awesome asset that's probably worth a few hundred thousand dollars that she's doing on the side, which is ridiculous. 
And that is what Christy is one of my favorite stories on your podcast as well. I kind of followed along with that. That was one of the inspiring ones for me, especially early on is kind of looking at what she did and just the progress there. And one thing I like to do too, and I, you know, when people do this is you can just kind of set up many goals here. So like the first thing you want to do is try to hit your first hundred dollars a month. If that's your first goal or even $50 a month, depending on what you're doing, that'll kind of get you motivated to actually stay the course, especially when you're grinding, writing articles and you don't see people coming to your site yet. This is a point in time where you can kind of set up some of these small goals and then build it up from there. Cause you'll see progress as time goes on and then it kind of snowballs over time as well, as long as your content is good and people are, are coming to your site. So um, that's another cool thing as well, but it's an interesting process, especially because obviously it's difficult in the beginning, but then, you know, as time progresses, you can start to see more income come in and the more sites you have, obviously, if you get really good at this or you start to hire out people, you can have additional sites and it's a really cool thing that you can do on that front as well. So what are some things people can do like pretty early on to grow their sites if they want to grow within, you know, the first two years or so? There's two main areas to put time into, and it's fairly simple, luckily. So you're publishing more content, going after more keywords. And on the content side, you can also improve existing content. So once you get out there and you know you publish your first set of articles, maybe there's new products or maybe some products have been discontinued or maybe there's you know new information that you can add. But Google, I mean, has actually come out and said they want publishers to spend about half their time publishing new content and then the other half, right? So 50% of your time improving the old content. And it seems like a lot to me. And honestly, I haven't gone back to improve content as much as they've uh, advised, but you know, with that in mind, you kind of need a process to go back. So that is all on the content side. And like I said, straightforward, publish more content. You know, we're talking high quality and make sure it serves the visitor. That's one thing. If you're going back to improve the existing content, make sure it fits the searcher's intent. So you can think about it again. If you're part of the community, you're part of someone that would actually search for that, you know what they're looking for. So that's one area. The other is backlink. So we didn't talk too much about that, but there's this whole other area of SEO and that is backlink. So that's when another site links to your site, usually they're referencing it in some way. And those backlinks serve as kind of like a quote unquote vote that Google sees. So that means that someone liked your content or found it so useful that they link to it from their site. And Google views that as a very positive signal. Now, there's this whole uh, sort of seedy underworld of backlinks and SEO where you could buy links and all that. So there's definitely a huge difference in the quality of the backlink. If it's a bad backlink where, you know, maybe someone's selling these links on Fiverr and there's thousands and thousands of links that other people purchase, then it's probably not worthwhile. But if you get a link from uh, New York Times or a big news story or just you know a reputable company, that is a very good thing. So improving your backlinks and generally like doing outreach and promoting your site is a way that you can improve your rankings. And like I mentioned before, if you move up just you know one position, even for a low search volume term, your traffic is probably going to go up in a you know, disproportional amount that would probably surprise you. Absolutely. And I think the backlinks are just such a major factor and obviously the content side as well, where you can kind of do that upfront. But backlinks are something like Doug said, it's like a vote for your website where as you set up your site, you have other people linking back to your site. So it makes it 
seem like it's more of an authority, especially to Google when they're looking at it, especially if it's like a big website like the New York Times or something like that. So that is a fantastic way as well. And some people used to write like guest posts and things like that um, to be able to gain back links in a legitimate way so that they could actually have links go back to their site. Um, that just obviously takes more work, but it's something that you could do up front as well. Now, if people have more money than they have time, another thing that you can do is you can buy niche sites. And one thing that you've done in the past is you've actually sold niche sites. Um, and there is ways to sell your niche site. As you mentioned, Christie's site is worth a certain amount based on how much she's earning every single year. So how can someone buy a niche site and what are they typically worth depending on how much they earn each year? So there's a few marketplaces out there. One that's sort of, um, I guess really well known in the community that I'm in is Empire Flippers. So they have um, any kind of online business, but a lot of them are sort of niche sites. Some of them are software products, some are agencies, but the majority I think are niche sites. And you know the value of going through you know someone like Empire Flippers or there's another uh, FE International, uh, Flippa is more like kind of an auction site. So there's a few places out there, but when you look at Flippa versus one of the other brokerages, uh, Flippa is a little more unregulated, like Wild Westy, and you don't know exactly what you're getting. Where on the brokerage side, they are vetting the sites, they're doing some sort of preliminary analysis and verification of whatever the seller uh, says their site is doing as far as traffic or analytics or anything like that, the brokerages are doing some homework for you, which is good. There's a lot of due diligence out there uh, that should be done and the brokerages can help you out with that. And on Flippa, I think they're trying to clean things up. I'm not a huge user, but I think things have improved a lot over at Flippa, but there's still like, you don't know who you're buying the website from exactly. Now, as far as the multiples is typically what people refer to. So it's kind of moving up. So right now, a website, you look at the net profit per month, and then you multiply it by this monthly multiple. And, you know, roughly it's around, uh, I would say like 30 to like 45 or so on average. And it depends on a number of factors, like the age of the site, the uh, number of traffic sources. So are they getting most of their traffic from Google or is there some coming from social media? The number of revenue sources. So do they have their own products? Do they have um, just Amazon affiliate? Are there a bunch of other affiliates? Are there display ads? And the more diversification from either the traffic or the revenue side, that'll boost it up. There's also other assets you might have, like a social media profile that has a lot of followers, YouTube, if you have a bunch of videos, email lists can be valuable. And, you know, if someone knows how to do email marketing, it could represent a really uh, strategic asset as part of the full website. So, you know, each layer of, you know, something else that you can add on there is going to boost the multiple up. So it's, uh, it's, really crazy. You know, when I first got started, the multiples were around, you know, I would say like the low 20s or so. And, you know, it's just been creeping up. And even with some, you know, economic uncertainty over the past year or two, the multiples are still quite high. It's kind of mind boggling. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure why that is. But yeah, have you ever bought or sold a site? No, I've looked at it before and I haven't looked at it in a while. And so those multiples are much higher because I saw them in the low to mid 20s last time I looked. 
but I was always interested in it, but just never did it. But I think that is absolutely amazing that they're going up like that because it's one of those things that um, years ago it makes me wish I would have bought a site and just flipped it. But, uh, right. But it's one of those things that you could definitely see as if it's growing like that, then maybe even in the future, they'll be growing even more. That's really interesting. Perfect. So the other thing I want to talk about with this, Doug, is um, really into financial independence. And you have utilized this to be, you know, you're very involved in the financial independence community. You have another podcast called Mile High Five, which is um, with Carl, which we met at FinCon via this. And, um, you know, you're very plugged into this community. So how has building niche sites and how has this whole process working online impacted you in your financial independence journey? I think it made it all possible. Um, one thing, and I won't tell my whole biography here, but I worked in the corporate world as a management consultant for about nine years or so. And I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. Um, there were certain projects where I maybe did hate it. But, you know, I just, I didn't really enjoy the corporate politics and that sort of thing. In 2015, I got laid off. But luckily at that time, I was already working on some niche sites. I had about two years of experience, some big highs, some big lows, and you know, a lot of failures. And I have, you know, a ton of things that just didn't work out, but I kept trying. And when I did get laid off, I thought, well, now's my chance. I didn't even have to, you know, work up the courage to quit. They laid me off and I had the chance to go for it. So I tried a bunch of things and it, it turned out that I was much happier working for myself. So just from a happiness standpoint, the autonomy to pick what I wanted to work on was fantastic. I could structure my day how I wanted to. Corporate politics were gone. And the crazy thing is I was earning more than I did, more than I thought I ever could at a corporate job, which is insane because that is not sort of the background that I have. I didn't have an entrepreneurship uh, interest, side hustles. I didn't even know. I just kind of accidentally dabbled and it kind of worked out. And, you know, because I started to earn a lot more money working for myself, uh, that accelerated the process. And I, again, I just kind of got lucky finding the FI community. So my wife and I started accumulating some money and we were trying to figure out how to invest. And we fired our previous uh, financial advisors that weren't doing a great job. And then I think my wife actually found Mr. Money Mustache's um, blog, found a couple things about investing. And we actually didn't really pay too much attention to the rest of the blog. We just kind of figured out how we wanted to invest, which is you know index funds. We did that for several years. A few years later, my wife got a job offer in Boulder, which is pretty close to Longmont, which is where Carl Jensen and Mindy live. Mr. Money Mustache Pete lives over here too, and you know several other people in this area. So I lived here for about six months before I joined the uh, co-working space and then met Carl and the crew and just happy accident. And it turns out, even though we didn't follow any of these sort of mustachian or fi ideas, we kind of ended up there anyway through just earning more money and being you know, relatively frugal. And we actually have a lot of the same values as the FI community. We just weren't as maybe obsessed as some other people. I was more obsessed with like entrepreneurship at the time, but now I've like flipped and it's amazing. There's a huge overlap in the values with the FI community and the side hustle and entrepreneurship, but they don't often talk to each other. So I feel like I'm kind of bridging the gap 
And there's even potentially a little judgment on both sides, but I think it's the same values. They just are talking different languages a little bit. So that's kind of the story. And I don't know if I answered the question, but that's how I ended up in this Phi community too. You absolutely did. And that's a perfect answer because I think it's one of those things where you created freedom with a different route. And what we talk about here a lot is financial independence has so many different ways that you can get there where a lot of people, the traditional form is the Mr. Money mustache form where, um, and he's the person I learned from early on. He's the person that kind of inspired me to get into financial independence. When I first read his blog, I think I read the whole thing in like two days. Oh, yeah. Um, but early on, that was one where, you know, that's a traditional form, but then there's so many different ways now between fat fire and barista fire and all these different ways that you can actually become financially independent. And you did it your own way. And your way is an amazing way to do it between entrepreneurship and being able to work for yourself and do what you enjoy. And now you get to do what you love every single day, um, which is something that is absolutely amazing. So that is one thing that I want people to kind of take note is, you know, there's just different routes that you can take to get there. And one of the coolest things that Doug did was he did it in a way that was maybe potentially unorthodox, but they have the same exact principles. I mean, they really, truly do. Um, and so bridging that gap, I think, is a really cool thing that you're doing um, as well. So I want to shift gears here. So these are a couple of questions that we ask everybody, and it's interesting because we get different answers every single time. But between the two of these, so the first one I have is, what is the best advice about money you've ever received? It's such a tough one, and I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give you two but it'll be different time periods. So invest early and often. And I think I probably heard it, you know, when I was young and I didn't really understand. And I don't know, you know, where I got that advice, but I know when I first got my job, I was throwing money into my 401k, maxing it out um, for those handful of years that I was working. Actually, even when I was in college, like doing internships and stuff. So I knew that that was a good thing to do. The other that is more relevant now that we have more money and we don't have to be as frugal is, you know, money is a tool and money buys you time and freedom. And when actually we were interviewing Brandon, mad scientist, right? And he talked about how we would treat $20 when he was in college versus how he treats $20 now. And we kind of all, or at least us in the room that day, we still treat $20 like we did in college, even though it represents a much smaller amount of net worth. And we're toiling over decisions where we could just buy convenience and maybe we should treat $1,000 like we did $20 when we were in college. We probably wouldn't do that because you can't do a lot of things with $1,000. But the point is, you know, money's a tool and you can buy convenience. And I have been doing that a lot more and not spending so much time making a decision when it kind of doesn't matter, you know, go ahead, get the Uber to save a little time. It's going to be okay. You know, $35 is not going to matter too much in a few weeks or a few months or, you know, maybe not at all. And I used to fall in the same camp too, where I would do the same thing. I would wrestle with these $20 decisions. And then I kind of realized as time went on, it's changed a lot, especially ever after I had kids and stuff as well was, it's more so about that convenience side and that money is there as a tool to bring you value and actually utilize in ways that gives you your most rich life. So I think that's one of the coolest things uh, that you can do with money as well. And then the last one is my favorite one. So what does wealth mean to you? <sighs> kind of ties into the last one where, you know, wealth is time freedom for me. So I'm skipping a couple things, but like that's the value that it brings to me. And quick you know, very specific example. Uh, my mom passed away a couple of years ago, but before she did, we were able to go on 
a six-week-long trip to Alaska. We drove here from Colorado, and it was before we knew she was sick. So we had a great time. We were gone for six weeks. You know, there's not that many people that could take six weeks off unless they're, you know, retired or have just some interesting arrangement or something. So yeah, we were able to just go have a great time. And unfortunately, she was diagnosed with cancer a few months after that. But, you know, we were able to spend all that time together and definitely couldn't do that with, you know, a full-time corporate job. So the wealth, you know, for me, it's time, freedom, and options. Absolutely. That's the most powerful thing that I could do is help you spend time with people you love most and have that time freedom. So that is absolutely amazing. So Doug, thank you so much for coming on. This is an incredibly valuable episode that I know people are going to love. So where can people learn more about you, what you have going on? Tell us about, you know, your website, your podcast, everything. Sure. So a uh, website is Niche Site Project. And as Andrew mentioned, I have like templates and other stuff that if you want, they're available for free. You just sign up for the email list. Uh, pretty easy to find. There's buttons to sign up for the email list. And then I have a YouTube channel where I cover sort of SEO affiliate marketing that's under Doug Cunnington. And you could find, you know, success story interviews. You could find tutorials. There's actually thousands of videos or over a thousand videos there. And I do a live stream each week, usually on Tuesdays. So you could check that out. And then my other show in the FI space. So if you're more interested in the financial independence, Carl Jensen and I talk to each other often, but we interview people as well. And you can, you know, find people that are on their journey to FI, people that have already you know, reached it. We've talked to people like uh, Paula Pant and uh, Brandon Mad Scientist, uh, Pete Adney, Mr. Money Mustache has been on a couple of times. And there's tons of stuff, the JL Collins interview as well. So there's a lot of stuff over there, both on YouTube and any of the major podcast players. That's absolutely amazing. And Doug's podcasts are some of the best ones out there. Um, so definitely make sure you check that out. His YouTube channel is amazing. I've learned so much from that as well. So we'll link everything that Doug talked about down below uh, in the show notes as well. So if you guys want to check that out, make sure you go check all that stuff out. Doug, thank you so much for coming on. This was really, really fun. Thanks. It's amazing. And I appreciate all the kind words. Absolutely. Everyone's heard the saying, you have to spend money to make money, but everything in life from travel to starting a business is expensive, which is why I want to tell you about a new podcast I love that will teach you all the tactics, tricks, and tips you need to upgrade your life, money, and even travel all while spending less and saving more. It's called All the Hacks, and it's a top-ranked show hosted by my good friend, Chris Hutchins a financial optimizer, an entrepreneur who's racked up millions of points, and he sold two companies. And if you want to rethink the way you're spending money, you have to check out the episode 91 with Bill Perkins and why you should be optimizing for net fulfillment and not net worth and striving to die with zero. All the Hacks has something for everyone, and I'm sure you'll find a new tactic that you can apply to your own life, whether it's a money hack that increases your net worth or a routine change that boosts your productivity. So check out All the Hacks. That's All the Hacks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your wallet will thank you later.